Financial security will help you live the life you dream. Learn about financial power, the total financial hour. Now higher. Hey, welcome to the show, the total financial hour. I'm Eric Halby. Hey, thanks for being with us this hour of the program. This is our special day. This is Father's Day. Uh, if you were with me last year, you had a good opportunity to hear my dad speak on the radio. Uh, we're blessed again to have him again this year. So we're going to talk about some of the things uh, from a father's perspective of an eight-plus-decade man on this earth who has had an opportunity to see lots of things and to be a father directly or indirectly to uh, at least dozens of people. We'll learn a little bit about his story as we continue. Part of the thing that uh, I think is important for you as an individual to remember is this. There are going to be people in your life that are fathers in various means or methods, maybe not directly uh, blood-related, but it could be an uncle. It could be a grandfather. It could be anybody in your life that's a man, I think, who has stepped up and taken responsibility as the, the father or the head of the household when it comes to the conversations that only a man can have. Uh, I understand there's all sorts of families and dynamics, and I get it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about perspectives and experiences that only a father, only a man, only a person who has gone through what, what a man goes through. Right? I mean, it's just different. If any of you think that, a, that because the, the latest political revolution says men and women are the same and there isn't any difference, and you can be called whatever you want, and the, what is it, 72 genders you can put on your driver's license in the state of California— I mean, is that wacky? You guys, you start removing some of the basics. You start removing some of the reality when it comes to uh, what we call family. Well, listen, I'm not saying it has to be 2.4 kids and a mom and a dad in a, in a house and a picket fence. But there is a man in your life, isn't there, who's made a difference. And sometimes it's a financial difference, giving you just that little head start, giving you just that $1,000 to get out the door. Maybe it's the person to get out and say, I don't think I'm going to give you anything. I'm going to give you some advice. You'll always have a phone you can call. Call me back. But you need to move, right? I had a friend recently. He was 18 years old and 18 minutes. And his dad said, you don't have to leave today, but just by the end of the month. And I think there was you know, two weeks left in the end of the month, and off he had to go. He's very grateful in the sense today, but he was probably very bitter, went through a lot of ups and downs. But when you don't have a man in your life, and you have all that testosterone, and you have all of that rage in some cases, and you don't know where it's coming from or why, I think it's more difficult. Wouldn't you agree? So joining us today is Mike Hallaby. Mike Hallaby is my dad of the last 51 years. Thank you for doing that, by the way. Thanks for being my dad. You're more than welcome. He's <laughs> been on this planet for 80-plus um, years, and as a man who has uh, really dedicated his life not just to our family, me, my three sisters, and mom, uh, but a man who's dedicated his life to many others throughout the years. And he's not the oldest in his family. You know, no, normally the oldest uh, child right, takes over the role of one of the parents, especially when both are working. But uh, he's number three. So there's something to be said where just position in, in the family isn't enough. It's the integrity. It's the leadership skills. It's the person who's willing to step up and not say things like, oh, I'm going to give this you. What I, I want you to do as we go forward is kind of share some of your stories. So I'm going to have a, a bit of a question and answer. You don't even know these questions, so you're just going to be kind of coming off the top of your head. But when you were a, a child, you grew up where? Tell everybody where you grew up. 
I grew up in uh, Lebanon, uh, in a little town called Ain Anoub. But it was a very educated town because we have uh, three schools and high schools and uh, even a college. And we do have a lot of the American comes in from the United States to teach in the schools. And that's how we were able to speak the language. And uh, when I finish high school, I have the opportunity to travel into West Africa, a country called Liberia. And uh, that's where my dad uh, have his own business there. And because I'm the only one who spoke English at that time, I was able to go and help him with his business in Liberia. Now, to fly on a plane back then must have been incredible because you're it, it, I don't know if there was a direct flight because it was in the 1950. What was it at the time? You remember? 1954. 1954. You left Lebanon, flew what direction? We went into Paris. Okay. And at that time, uh, we landed in Paris, and then we just walked out of the airport. At that time, there was no restriction like today. No customs, no immigration. No, just go outside and sit and wait till the plane wants to leave. And then... Uh, walk back in to the airport and then uh, fly back to to Liberia. So you had a bit of a change of a plane. Yes, so, we did. So when you landed in Liberia, you had never been to Africa, no. West Africa, and the humidity and the, and the different culture. I mean, it must have been a bit shocking for you at first. It, it was. It was very shocking. But I was uh, very lucky to have my uncle met me there. And uh, we drove from the airport, which is like uh, 50 miles from the city, from Monrovia. And uh, it was humid and hot, and it's kind of different. But uh, you you adjust uh, to the weather in time, you know. Your dad was now far away uh, at one point as a child. Do you remember telling, uh, thinking, uh, you know, I miss my father every day, probably, while he was working and in business there? Tell me about the time when he would teach you things. What would he teach you when you first arrived? Because it had been a little while since you had seen him. Well, it's to, to be honest and uh, and do the hard work and uh, try to earn uh, living, uh, you know, the best way, uh, the honest way, and uh, be be true to yourself and others. When uh, your father decided to pick up the grocery business, what was his occupation before that? He was a taxi driver in Beirut, Lebanon. So, you guys, my grandfather was a taxi driver in Beirut, Lebanon. It's just amazing. It's pretty exciting to think about, uh, you, you know, from the background of uh, – did he ever have a dream of coming to the, to America? No, actually, he never thought of that. But uh, I have the opportunity. So and he came after I came here. Yeah. Yes. In fact, I, re- I don't know if he came before I was born, but I do remember one of the times that he came. Uh, mm. It's got to be in the 70s. No, he came after you were born. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the first time he came is the first time. Yeah. And uh, let me tell you, he didn't understand a lot of English, uh, but yeah. me and my grandfather and even my grandmother, for that matter, would communicate you know, in a different way. They were always very proud of you, and they leaned on you for lots of reasons. So your dad, when he would have a problem with the family, how many, how many brothers and sisters we're ten total, uh, seven boys and three girls. Whenever there was an issue in the family, the phone would ring, 
you would get in the car and you'd go somewhere. I don't know, somebody's house or wherever you would go to, to help solve a family dispute or help somebody out of a jam or whatever it was. Yes, of course, because uh, I was the only, the first one who came here and have more uh, knowledge of the of the uh, living here, and uh, I was able to communicate between each others and uh, try to help them. I always saw that in you as a son to a father that when there was a jam, you were the one that was called, and you kept a level head, even though sometimes I may want to. <laughs> Say things behind the scenes. We, uh, you, you kept that level head. It, I think it's what led me to become a Los Angeles police officer and be that guy who who stood in the middle to solve problems. As a pro- but also later on in life, now for the last twenty three years as a financial professional, to sit in the world and say, okay, how do we solve a problem? That came from you. It didn't come from from seeing it in anybody else's life. Yeah, it, it it's kind of God gifted, you know, that person. Uh... And also experience in life, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll get you that way, you know. One of the things that uh, I really like to speak about here is when you were younger, before you left Lebanon, you played some athletics. And in this little town in, in, Ain, in Lebanon, Ainanub, up in the villages, it had a couple of things. And when I went back to visit uh, with my mom, first time in 1999, we had a chance to see the area in which you played this sport. And what was it that you used to do as a little little boy? We played soccer. <laughs> <laughs> a big soccer field that was dirt. <laughs> and you guys, it was funny to me because our American kids, right? Oh, my kids, your kids, were generally a little bit spoiled. We don't understand that most of the world, certainly through Africa and the Middle East, they play football or soccer on dirt. Dirt, right. Dirt. It, it, it dirt. isn't played on, you know, this... Uh, Fiscue, green fiscue, blue, uh, green, you know, right? The stuff that we put in our yards. Yeah, we, we didn't have that luxury. No. Know. But you used to play there, and I remember seeing, uh, gosh, how old you must have been, uh, I think you were what early 60s, whatever it was, probably 60-something. But to see you on that field, your face lit up because you just yeah. remembered back to your teenage and your, your preteen years. That's true, yeah, you remember back and so you had a couple of things. What was it that sports taught you? Did sports teach you anything when you were a kid? Do you remember having uh, yeah, a coach? Of course. I mean, the sport is uh, to get along with the others and uh, keep you healthy and, uh, you know, communicate with others. And you were somebody who had a coach. Was the coach anybody you can remember? Do you remember anybody that was the, the leader, or the an older boy or a coach that was on the team? Well, actually, I was always a coach myself. <laughs> <laughs> this is my surprised face. Yeah. No, I, uh, I always been a leader, even you know, since I was little. But uh, you know, to a certain extent, of course, you know, when you're little, that's how much you you can do. You know, today a lot of men will shirk their responsibilities. That means they give it up. Right, they will say, "Oh, well, that's not for me. That's the the this old adage. It takes a village." Well, no, thank you. I'll take care of my family. You take care of yours. If you can't take care of yours, then there's great churches and charities and organizations. But this village thing, where we have Sacramento telling us how to raise our children, or Washington D.C., you know, what kind of uh, uh, sex ed classes and gender whatever ed classes we're supposed to teach our kids at you know five years old, that's insane to me. Uh, thankfully, my youngest is 19, so I don't have kids in the, the younger schools anymore. But you never 
shirked your responsibility. You never gave up that responsibility. Even when your company transferred you from Los Angeles to New York, and I was in martial arts, I was in jiu-jitsu tournaments, I was in uh, baseball, I played that for a little while, and we were in team sports, fathers uh, or or a back-to-school night, parents' night, you would still fly in a plane (laughs) because you would come home on weekends. How would you do that? Because today I... I fly a little bit. I have to go back. But it's just to Las Vegas for a conference, and I come back. But you would fly four or five hours across the country. Every weekend. Yes, going yeah. and coming. Yeah, I come in on Friday and go back on Sunday. Yeah. it's uh, When you're young, uh, I think it, this has something to do with your ability to, to cope with this. And also my responsibility to come and see my family and be with them at least for the weekend, you know. And how come you didn't just take a job here? Because the opportunity was for me to move to New York, to work in New York. And uh, uh, I have a good title with the company. I was like a vice president of marketing. And that required me to be in New York because of all the headquarters of most of the airline in New York. And so the... The headquarters in New York, it, it's sometimes shocking to me, and, and I can't – I have to bite my tongue. I can't always say something. When somebody comes as a client and says, oh, I don't find a job, why? Well, you know I have to, to drive to Santa Barbara or I have to drive to San Bernardino or – and I'm thinking, you guys are – you're kidding me because I used to drive 92 miles one way to work yes. because that's where I had to live and that's where my job was. You flew, well, I don't know, what is it, 3,000, 4,000 miles, 3,500 across the country? Something like that, yes. For your family. Because I think part of what I learned was the ability to work hard for your family first. And that's very important because it's missing today. A lot of people will think it's about themselves first. And you seem to put others. Tell me a story about, uh, tell me, uh, when you were young, you had maybe... Well, let's say one of the hardest things you went through. Tell me about that time. It might have been 10 years ago. It might have been 50 years ago, whatever. But when you were younger, you had a tough time and you had to make a decision. Can you remember what you think if I was to say, what's the toughest time you went through? Actually, the toughest one is that when I was in Ainanoub, you know, I have a couple cousins, they were going to school in a town called Shwaifet. And uh, I used to be able to walk from Ainanup to Shwaifet and go through a hill and go through a valley. That valley that's in between you, you used to yes. walk down and walk up yes. the other side? Wow. And that's, uh, that was a hardship. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of wild animals too, and uh, so... You, it's it's kind of scary, but I was able to do it, and that was a hardship on me. Because yeah, it was something you had to do every day. Not quite every day, no, but uh, when I have to do it, I have to do it, you know. It's a, a very interesting. Think of a horseshoe shape, guys, where there's a road that runs along the outside of yes. the horseshoe, and one village is on the one point, and then the other village is on the other point, and instead of walking on the road, I guess it might have been dangerous, right, to walk around the road? Well, the no, cars. it's a long way. Oh, it is longer. It's very long. <laughs> the mind of a young person, you and I would say, well, why don't we just Uber? Well, <laughs> it didn't exist. It's a shortcut. Yeah, a shortcut. 
they would have a different name. I would almost say an Arabic name, but <laughs> it might not be going, might not go over well. It's like, why don't you just Fayed, you know? <laughs> well, when you were young, your, your mom and dad, your mom used to tell you stories. And I think in a family environment, as a young boy, they would share stories, share things about the happening in their town, in their village, uh, maybe just in the history, like maybe ancestors. Can you think of any story or any uh, conversation that they would have as maybe it was something they would tell all the time? Like we have stories that we always laugh about every once in a while when we get together as a family. Well, actually, uh, we have stories from the neighbors sometimes, you know, it's just kind of... <laughs> We had a guy used to be, he called himself a police officer in Syria. And and uh, in town, you know, when someone have a kid in Syria and when he comes back to town, they go to him and ask him, uh, have, you, have you seen my son? And, and he said, who's your son? He said, my son is so-and-so. Oh, your son, so and so. I'm so sorry. Uh, he, he passed away and died and all that, you know. <laughs> and the mother starts screaming. Oh no! Oh my God! And then they st- did a funeral just about in the in the town for him. And then all of a sudden, the son appeared <laughs> that day at his funeral. <laughs> Because the guy was trying to be a big shot and say that he knew yeah, everybody, of course. That he knows everybody and all that. <laughs> so this is a story been repeated most of the time in that town. Well, it's funny. In every culture, in every community, you always have the group that might be a little bit more picked on or that that is a little bit more um, uh, put down or they're doing the jobs that maybe others don't do. And so they... You know, it's that group of people that uh, are sometimes the butt of jokes, I guess that's the word to say. But one of the things that that I looked at growing up is in our little town in Silmar, right, where we grew up, Silmar, California, we would be in this community and there wasn't a lot. It was a working class community. There weren't a lot of men that would wear suits, but your job required you to wear a suit and tie. And I remember if you would come you would almost land from the airport probably just to arrive at the school in time for back to school night or if it were a open house or whatever it might have been graduation and you would be the only man in the yeah. audience with a suit and tie and it was a very uh and they used to pick on me too <laughs> yeah people would say things i remember my sister used to get uh picked on and say oh your dad thinks he's a big shot or your dad is you know you guys are rich and you think you're hot, all that i remember thinking like what do they where do they get that from because i saw that as just normal that was your yeah. uniform right it was a very different time to think that yes of course i mean uh, our job required for that and and it was time for me to do that you yes know? yeah that's, uh, but uh, that's how people take it sometimes you know they they're not used to it or uh, you know when you were younger your grandparents were involved quite a bit in your life at what age do you remember your last memory of your your grandparents? Well, on my father's side, I don't remember any of my uh, grandfather, but I do have my grandmother. And uh, that's how I named my daughter, same name, Fatet, you know. Yes. Yeah. And she she lived up to almost 100 years old. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
And she was very special. She was with you. She, yes, she was with us living in the house. And uh, on my uh, mother's side, I have a grandmother and grandfather. And uh, they were not too far from our house where we live. So just a walking distance, you know. And uh, they uh, they own a lot of property there, and they have uh, fruit uh, farms and uh, vegetable and stuff like. That. So, did a lot of uh, a lot of the wealth in that area wasn't necessarily in dollars as much as it was in real estate or in right. the crops, the fruit, the olive trees, the fruit trees. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you have all kind of fruits and. Uh, Lebanon has always been known as the the basket, the fruit basket, if you will, to the Middle East, because it had such rich soil yes. through the Bekaa Valley and through the trees, the olive trees and the orchards. It's one of the the best, if you will, olive oil, if I remember right, maybe rivals Greece or something. But From Lebanon, yes. Yeah, from Lebanon. from Lebanon. And you see that when the times that I've been there, I've seen that it has been a very popular uh, thing to do is to go back home, if you will. You come to the United States or Australia or Europe. A lot of Lebanese live outside of of Lebanon, and they make their money, they make their wealth, and some of them will go back. Yes. And what do they do? They retire there. They retire there, and uh, but they they uh, they have family. They go back to their families, and uh, and they live the rest of their life over there. The one thing that both mom and I noticed is in that world, we couldn't figure out how people had a job <laughs> like we're we couldn't figure out like wait a second what do these people do for a living because everybody was always out monday through sunday drinking partying relaxing eating dinner starting at 9 p.m that's it's true. very european that's true in fact most people maybe you didn't know this but lebanon was the only country in the middle east and still to this day one of the only countries in the middle east that had christian muslim and, and uh druze which is what my father's faith is, Druze, but also Jewish people. In fact, there was a synagogue in Beirut up until, yes. I want to say, the Civil War. Was it 76 or maybe before that a little bit? Yeah, it's about uh, that time. And I think there still is, uh, but there aren't a lot of Jewish people. There were No, there was an area. Uh, it was uh, nothing but Jewish people lives in there. Yeah, the Jewish Quarter, yeah. I think they called it. Yeah, they get along with everybody and... Uh, there was no, never a problem. Today, you have a lot of the, the Jewish people, of course, are gone. Um, but when it comes to Christianity, and, and it's one of the only Middle Eastern countries that has Christian and Muslim that live, coexist, sometimes yes. maybe a little bit no, no, you know, they, a little bit sensitive, but they coexist. They're in the government together. They're in business together. It's a normal— They celebrate each other's holidays. Yes, yeah, they sure Christmas do. and uh, and— uh, I've never known a Lebanese to miss a holiday. It doesn't matter who it is. Yes. They would celebrate it with somebody if it's yeah. uh, good food and good drink. Folks, we're going to continue in just a minute. Uh, let me give you our phone number. Uh, certainly give us a call uh, tonight, today, this week. It doesn't matter. Triple eight ninety nine retire That's 888-997-3847. I have another segment with my dad this Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to those uh, men and women out there who uh, who have their father, who, who create, who live who live for others, right? That's what the men do. Uh, We'll continue in just a second. On your place for news talk information, folks, this is the Total Financial Hour. Again, 888-99-RETIRE. I'm Eric Hallaby with my special guest, Mr. Mike Hallaby, my dad. And we'll be back after this. 
strategy. Learn from Arab Halabi. Learn about financial power, the total financial hour. Financial security will help you live the life you dream. Learn about financial power, the total financial hour. Now hire Hey, welcome back to the show, the total financial hour. Thanks for staying with me. I'm Eric Hallaby, special guest on this Father's Day, Mr. Mike Hallaby. I'm a father of three, some of my favorite people in the world, my three children. And in addition to all of that, some of my other favorite people in the world are my dad. And, of course, my mom and my siblings, uh, my sisters. But uh, Dad joins us today. Dad, uh, we talked a little bit about being in Lebanon and some of the stories, some of the things that happen. And so part of this that's, uh, that's part of your story and why I don't speak with an accent <laughs> is because I was born and raised here. So you came to the United States. Uh, but last we left off, you were in Liberia, West Africa. How did you end up coming to the United States from West Africa? Well, I... Uh was offered a job in, in Liberia with an American company called Matisse Railway. And they were doing uh, uh, rails for a, for a distance of like 100 miles. Railroad, uh, like yes. you were welding, right? Welding, you were a welder? Right, welding the rails together. And uh, when I was offered it, they offered me a job. After this job completed, uh, to come to United States with them, they'll they'll bring me to United States and they'll give me a job. Their headquarter was in Chicago. Yeah, they call it Chicago Heights, I think, at that time. So uh, I had a contract with them, and then they paid my way and they brought me into this country when I when the job completed in Liberia. Yeah, and uh, when I came. Uh, I landed in New York. I don't know what to go. <laughs> yeah, there's there was no wasn't anybody holding a sign. No, they said ticket, Mike Hallaby. <laughs> the, the ticket was only to New York. I didn't realize that. Oh, well, you're kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you had to get your own way to Chicago, maybe yes. by train or something. Yeah, I did later on uh, after I spent a uh, couple of weeks in New York. At, at that time, New York World's Fair was on, so the World's Fair, yeah. Yeah, so I was able to go and. Worked for every day to uh, enjoy the the fair. Now, how much money did you have to come to the United States at that time? Because you had to have. I have twenty eight hundred. That's a lot of money back then. At that time, yes. That might be I don't know twenty thousand maybe today. Right. How how did you save that much money just in Lebanon? I mean, I'm sorry. No. In, uh, yeah, I working for the company. I was uh, I was making like at that time five hundred dollars a month. You know, with the company. That's pretty good. That's real yeah. good. But in the meantime, I was sending my family in Lebanon, like uh, some of it every month. You know. Sure. Yeah. But uh, when I landed in New York, uh, I don't know where to go. So I just asked, seeing everybody get in a bus, you know. <laughs> 
I said, uh, I go to a hotel. They said, yeah, get in. So I get in a bus, and then the bus would take me to a bus station. Oh, no. I said, where's the hotel? He said, you take a cab to the hotel. Oh, my gosh. So I took a cab. I said, the closest hotel, and that happened to be the Taft Hotel. The Taft? Taft Hotel. Okay. It was $10 a night to stay at the hotel. It was a nice hotel, too. So I go down to the coffee shop, you know, have breakfast or lunch and that. And I take all that money out of my pocket, you know, to pay with my bill. And the waiter said, hey, wait a minute. You can't do that here. That money, you better put it away. Take it one dollar at a time because ah. anybody would see that money, they'll, they'll take you. it away from you. Yeah, right. So I thank her for that and then uh, uh start, uh, you know, going around, and uh, I finally rented a room in in, uh, in Brooklyn. So you ended up in a room in Brooklyn, but unbeknownst to you, there was a 17-year-old young lady who was on a class trip from Michigan to New York at the World's Fair. That was their senior trip, and she was there at the same time at the at the World's Fair, and staying at the same hotel. Staying in the same hotel, and yet you did not meet. No, of course not. Not until weeks later. No. Maybe months later. No, more than that. Because when, when was the World Fair? When did you arrive in the United States? If I, if I remember right, it was July or August, something like that. Okay. Maybe before that, because mom's birthday was your first date, and that's August 31st. So I think it, and she was still in school. It was her, her senior trip. <clears throat> so it was probably, could have been like May or June, April, May, something like that probably. Could be. I mean, I don't remember the date exactly. But uh, but I ended up in a room, renting a room in Brooklyn. And somehow I uh, was paying like, I think it was $60 a month. Okay. For the room. It's not bad. Yeah, comparing to $300 a month at the hotel. Wow. Yeah. So that's a great savings. So, yeah, and I used to take the, the, the subway, you know, they have a subway. For pennies to get to the city, huh? Yeah, it's it's, a, it's a good transportation there. So you ended up now, if we take and fast forward, trying to figure out, I'm, I'm going to start a business. And you need to get to California. Now, why did California come into your mind? Okay. It's it's a long story. I don't know if you have time. <laughs> we don't. We have about fifteen minutes. But uh, tell me. No, I uh, I flew to Washington. I flew to West Virginia. There was a convention in West Virginia at Charleston, uh, and I met uh, someone who I met in Lebanon, and I helped him translate. He get married to a Lebanese girl, and I happened to translate for him at that time because I spoke the English language, you know. And then uh, he walked in to the hotel, and the minute I saw him, I knew who he was. Who he was. I approached him, and I said, who I on? And he remembered me, and he gave me his business card. He said, you come to California, you have a place to stay, and you have a job to do. I said, okay, I'll keep that in mind, you know. But then I went back to New York. And from New York, I ended up in Michigan, and I started working in Michigan. But I kept his card, and uh, 
And after we met my wife and we get married and we decide to come to California, then we drove. I bought me a car and we drove to California. So you never decided to not work. You always had an opportunity to oh, work. Yes. That was always absolutely, a goal. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wasn't sitting around trying to get no, something for free no. because you exist. So uh, so we came and uh, my wife was the uh, map quest at that time. <laughs> yes, she was the map quest. Yes. <laughs> Donna quest. She, she holding the map and <laughs> and I'm doing the driving. So it took us three days to get here. And you guys visited sites along the way because this was yeah, basically we, your honeymoon, yeah, right? Yeah, we stopped every night and stayed in a hotel. And, yeah. And this is your honeymoon on the way across America. Just about, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we uh, we end up at uh, this guy here on a hotel in Anaheim. We stayed at the hotel in Anaheim and uh, he offered us a job. And Was Disneyland? I think Disneyland was open, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, so yeah. he was close to Disneyland, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he has property actually close to Disneyland, too. Yeah, he's well-to-do. He was well-to-do. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, from there on, you know, I didn't like working in the hotel, so. And I always like to work for myself and get. To. So we moved into North Hollywood and. Uh, so you guys ended up. So I want to fast forward a little bit because there is. Uh, a couple of things that you are doing in business along the ways. I'm gonna. I, I may get it out of order, but this is just my memory. You had a bakery, mm-hmm. and mom was eight months pregnant with my older sister, putting uh, what, what folks what you guys call pita bread. We called it Arabic bread growing up, and if you're Armenian, you probably called it Armenian bread. It's pita bread, and uh, you had a you had a bakery. I think it was in Hollywood, right? No, uh, bakery in City of Commerce. Commerce, okay. And so then uh, the bread would come off the line. Mom was eight months pregnant, putting it in, tying up the bags. Plastic, yeah. Yep. So you had a bakery. Then you had a, was it a cafe? What was next? No, I have uh, three beer bars. Beer bars, that's right. You had bars. And uh, Santa Clarita was one of them. One of them, Santa Clarita, one in Pocoima, one in Cheswick. Okay. So in the northern San Fernando Valley and Santa Clarita Valley. Yeah. So then you were from there. You had the the cafe at Whiteman Airport in San Fernando. Correct. So you had ran owned and ran the cafe for the pilots, basically. Yeah. You learned to fly. That's right. And uh, the Cessna's one seventy two, I guess. What was it that you were? Yeah, one fifty to begin with, and then one seventy two. Yeah. And I remember you would fly around quite a bit and yeah. do acrobats and do crazy stuff. And well, I took you one time to Upper Valley on the I flight. remember. I remember. Yep, I was yeah. a little boy. What I didn't, what I remembered, which was crazy, is sometimes you would come home and after you did all the acrobatic stuff, and you would tell mom, "Oh, by the way, I did double loop and barrel," right, and, right. and this way you would get what is it, forgiveness instead of permission. <laughs> so well, this is what they teach you to do you know, <laughs> to to do the uh, the barrel roll or the yeah. uh, the stalls. Yeah, stall. Yeah. Yeah. So you flew for many years. That was kind of fun. Yeah. And then from there. You ended up in the produce business. Produce, yeah. And so many of you guys would remember Pup and Taco. Yes. I remember that because as a little boy, I must have been five, six years old, and you had the Pup and Tacos, the restaurants, and uh, I would try to go to work with you, certainly in the summertime, and you would, uh, mom would take the orders throughout the day, It'd give me two cases of tomatoes, one case of lettuce, whatever it was, and then um, you would come home, 
go to sleep early, get up at maybe midnight or one o'clock in the morning? Two o'clock, yeah. Two o'clock. Because you would have to be where? At the markets downtown. The farmer's market? Yeah, farmer's market, because they open up early, so you have to pick up the your uh, orders and produce and then and deliver them to the stores, you know. I used to have the chain of Papantaco and it's uh, in charge of supplying them all the... Do you remember how many stores that was? About 12, I think. Wow. 12 of them, yeah. And it wasn't, wasn't just the San Fernando Valley. Didn't they go over the hill yeah. a little bit? Yeah. Pasadena, Burbank, and all of yeah. that. Yeah. So the Papantaco ended up being bought by somebody. I tried to remember this the other day. Was it uh, Del Taco or Taco Bell? One of the one of the chain restaurants. I don't know, but uh, they're not uh, in business anymore. No, no. Uh, you also had. Be- it's not because of me. <laughs> <laughs> you left. <laughs> they said we're out of business. Uh, Chinese food restaurants. So you would supply a lot of the mom and pop oh, restaurants. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah, a couple of chains, but mom and pop mostly. Yeah, there's no limit. To, yeah. And then, how did you get into the airline business? Well. Uh, after I sold my business, my produce business, I have a friend. Uh, he was uh, he has a travel agency, and he has a. So I start working for him, you know, as a travel agent, and then from there I get to know the airline, and I start working for the airline. I was offered a job. So between grocery business, hotel business, uh, bar business. Bakery, travel agency, airline business, to vice president of an airline, uh, of, of the cargo division of the, for the United States, anyway. Uh, that's, that's pretty incredible. That's Lebanese. That is the Lebanese. If you know it, I guess it's what happened. You know, the, what's amazing to me when I think about this, Dad, is I think about never giving up, right? How many people, and, you know, my heart breaks for them because it. it there has to be a level of sympathy, and, and there is. I'm, it's harder for me to find it sometimes the older I get when people say, well, there just isn't a job. And every day you can turn on the news and you hear there's six million jobs that there aren't enough people to fill. I understand there isn't a job, if you, but it's because people say, I want a job that looks like this. Get weekends off. I only drive this far. I want all of these benefits. I can't work past this. I need two weeks vacation. And you go, well, of course there isn't a job. Nobody knows you. Why would they give you anything yet? And you were somebody that taught me, because I don't remember not having at least two jobs for nearly most of my young life. I always had two jobs. Even when I was a Los Angeles policeman, when uh, you lost your job, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, that was August 1st of 1990. By August 3rd of 1990, I think the FBI and the Treasury Department shut down the entire airlines in the United States, including your pension including your paycheck, everything was gone. Yeah. And I believe you were, what, 55, 56 years old at the time? Yeah. So a 56, 55-year-old man loses 100% of his pension. You see, you guys think your pension is yours. It's not yours. It belongs to the company. It belongs to the state. It belongs to the city. You're entitled to a paycheck, and you're entitled to a piece of it. But if they change their mind or they file bankruptcy or there's a collapse or whatever the issue is, or fraud, like like in uh, Orange County, right? Anything can happen. You don't know. So part of what I want you to do is to learn from the story of a man who's in his 80s and who worked his tail off, who didn't, who wasn't from this country, right? Didn't understand the culture, 
the, the customs, the, the system. And never, not once, did you ever allow me or mom or the kids or my sisters to go without food. Not once. In fact, we always had fresh food, because, I think because of your time in the, in the produce business. And I tell this story, I tell this with uh, mom the other day. Uh, I didn't even know that vegetables came in a can until I was probably 12 years old. I remember coming down the street because I stayed at the neighbor's house, you know, the, the folks across the street with the six kids. Yeah. And I remember staying there. Like I spent the night, you know, uh, stayed, stayed overnight. And I come home the next day. I go, Mom, Dad, you wouldn't believe this. They have corn in a can. And you guys were like, yeah. I said, well, no, no, no. It comes in a can. It's already off the thing. And you said, yes, of course. But it was shocking to me because in that time and in that world, it wasn't something that I ever understood that existed. It was we, were, we had such healthy food. We may not have had, you know, a new bicycle every Christmas and every birthday like the young man across the street. Remember, he, he had a new bike twice a year. We may not have had a fancy new camper to go camping like those other kids down the way, but we never went without food. Fresh food. Fresh food. And so then 1976 happens, and we'll finish up with this. There's a civil war in Lebanon, and at that period of time, that civil war in Lebanon, you went back to bring back some people. Yes, I brought in back about 35 people from my family. Yes, and I have to get them from Lebanon to Jordan, and at that, at that's close in Lebanon because of the war. So we have to take them to Jordan and then do all that paperwork in Jordan and bring them here from Jordan. Yeah. And one of the jobs that I failed to mention that you did for about a week was you worked in the U.S. Embassy. <laughs> As a volunteer. As a volunteer. To help issue visas because they were overloaded, but you were an American citizen at that time for years, spoke the language, understood the culture, understood the people, spoke English, of course, fluently. And so they asked for some assistance to help sort out some of the visas. It was more than one week, actually. Was it really? Yeah. For how long? A couple of weeks, yeah. And what was your job? Just to interview people at the window and uh, issue visa if they... If they're interviewed correctly, you know. Make sure they were telling the truth, whatever yes, it might be. of course. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, you shared with me that still to this day helps me understand the impact that you had on this earth, probably for generations, maybe forever, for as long as we're still a planet, you know, was you were going to a gas station and you were filling up your gas tank and something happened. Yeah, I pulled into a gas station on Roscoe by the freeway, 170 freeway. And then all of a sudden, a guy ran, ran into me, and he looked at me, and he said, you gave me visa to come to the United States. And I he's said, in Arabic, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't remember him, you know, but of course. Uh, I said. Was oh. he working at the station? He owned yes, the station, he was right? working yeah. at the gas station. Yeah. And he, he ran like crazy. I mean, You're the one who gave me visa to come to the United States. I said, okay. And that was 1976? Yeah. Are you happy here? He said, yeah, thank you. (laughs) And when you ran into him was how long ago? Just a few years. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't... uh, It was like 30 years plus went by. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a few years ago. So from 1976 to, let's say, 2005, 2006, 30 
30 years go by. Yeah. Maybe it was soon, maybe it was uh, 2010, but but recently. I think he owned a gas station. He did. Time. Yeah. He, he did own the gas station. Yes. And what's amazing to me is you brought somebody now he doesn't remember. I mean I mean sorry, you don't remember. You don't remember his, his face, there's people. Yes, of course. But 30 years go by and you, he remembers you. Yeah, he remembers. 30 years go by and he had children. Yeah. He owned a gas station. Yeah, he owned a business, you know. He's a contributing member of society. Yeah. And he still had the class to come and thank you. Yeah. Well, sometimes when you do good to somebody, you don't remember the person, but the person being good to him, he remembered these things, you know. So this is, unfortunately, not everybody like that, but some people do, you know. And sometimes it's easy to get frustrated, even when we're doing good, even when we're trying to make a difference. That's right. You forget that it can be a little bit uh, inconvenient to be decent, but... So this is uh, – I'm pretty excited. I'm glad you were able to make it to the show. Thank you. Yeah. You're a special guy. You know that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You had one uh, son. That's me. And you also have two grandsons and one granddaughter on my side and then two other grandsons. Yes. So you have a long legacy of five grandchildren on this earth. Thank God for that. Yes. Getting healthier and stronger. One of them, my uh, youngest boy, had some issues, but he's getting stronger and better. After the surgery, I want to tell you guys, uh, there's a lot of amazing hospitals we have. Providence is an incredible place here in Southern California. Um, And I have to also say that UCLA, they uh, helped my youngest son out uh, recently and did an amazing job. So uh, you need to think. Think that you live at a time where there are amazing medical uh, facilities and incredible physicians. I mean, I get it. They're just people. But you need to understand that these are human beings that do their craft to make sure that you survive. All the way through from the physicians to the people that deliver the produce, who make a difference in people's lives. And that man, his children, who are American citizens now, of course, because they are born here, make a difference in this world. I mean, you don't even know that the man who owned that gas station, maybe his grandchild will become the doctor who cures cancer. That's right. Right? Or his granddaughter is the first astronaut that lands on Mars. I mean, you just don't know. Yeah. Right? It could be uh, the difference. Or the president of the United States. Or the president of the United (laughs) States. That would be incredible. Yeah. And then you get a seat to just sit at the inauguration right up at the front row. (laughs) I'll be your guest. Can I? Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us. Uh, This is a special edition. Arif Hallaby, that's me. Total Financial Solutions. Let me give you the phone number a couple times. So grab your pen. That's 888-99-RETIRE. That's 888-997-3847. If you ever like to get together, you have a question, you have a comment, uh, you want us to take a look at your retirement accounts, if there's one or the whole portfolio, what it is that matters to you, maybe we can help. Uh, You can track our shows. I wanted to take a sidestep just to honor my dad on this special day. So if you have any questions, you can always give us a call and we'll get to more detail. Thanks for being with me to this hour of the program. I'm Arif Hallaby. The Total Financial Hour, sponsored by Total Financial Solutions and TFS Financial and Insurance Services. We bring it to you every week at this time on Your Answer. That's AM870, The Answer. Learn about financial power. 
the total financial hour.